hate people. I've been scared of them practically my whole life. And people that I loved, people I trusted, have done their absolute worst to me. And for a long time, that's all I ever knew. Society deserves to be hated for everything you said they did and more. And you fuck every last one of them for what we've all been through. But then, there are some people out there, but they refuse to let you hate them. In fact, they care about you in spite of it. They're relentless at it. They don't abandon you, no matter how many reasons you give them. No matter how much you're practically begging them to leave. And you want to know why? Because they feel something for me that I can't. They love me. And for all the pain I've been through, that heals me. We do fucked up things to each other, and we hurt each other, and it gets messy. But that's just us. In any world you're in, we're all told we don't stand a chance. And yet, we stand. We break. But we keep going. And that is not a flaw. That's what makes us. So no. I will not give up on this world. And if you can't see why, then I speak for everyone when I say, Fuck you! Happy Heresies, and welcome to the desert of the real. Heresies shouldn't be this much fun, but it is, it just is. Especially when we of the broken places know we're not alone, and we were made for these broken times when society is broken under the weight of its own iniquity and absurdity. This is all reflected in the intro clip you heard from Mr. Robot. And the people bowed and prayed to the neon god they made, and they can't even check out any time they want, and still can't leave this cosmic hotel California. But we veterans of a thousand psychic wars can, because we have each other in our maze of magic and madness can thrive in this age of Hermes, Philip K. Dick world, and Gnostic times. Have the means to connect with our higher selves. This world you made will always be broken. Just like you. It's raining Gnosis, hallelujah. And as Mark Twain once said, the two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. We all have a sacred purpose, you see, 
because we know so much and have traveled so far for that liberating spiritual tech called Gnosis. Or as Gilles Gispel said about Gnosis, we have, quote, gone through the inferno of matter and the purgatory of morals to arrive at the spiritual paradise. You think I am a devil, but only because I have lived in hell. Welcome, you shining crazy diamonds. You are amazing and are full of so much potential, empathy, and destiny. While the meat sacks falter as the Kali Yuga finger bangs to oblivion, the last of their respectability. It's all fun and games until someone loses a third eye. And then it's just Gnosis. Birth is a curse and existence is a prison. It's raining Gnosis, hallelujah, indeed. But there is also an abundance of eldritch tools for wholeness here at Aeon Bite making it easy to finally find out why you were born. This episode is no exception, as we are once again joined by the amazing Gary Lockman, discussing his fantastic but practical new book, Dreaming Ahead of Time, Experiences with Precognitive Dreams, Synchronicity, and Coincidence. Get that data to further grant you a robust prescription of psycho-spiritual panaceas you need right now to unleash your inner Prometheus and indwelling palace Athena. Even the smallest person can change the course of the future. Gary always delivers, and I'm so grateful for everything he's done to provide keys in the Black Iron Prison. Let society collapse as Mr. Robot predicted. Let the world burn with the wrath of angry but irrelevant gods. No one here gets out alive, but we transcend because we are understanding why we were born. Some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. Describing us perfectly, Gary Lockman did write in his Colin Wilson biography, Beyond the Robot, this. The outsider is someone who sees too deep and too much, and that most of what he sees is chaos. He or she lives in the world with a sense of strangeness and unreality the safe, stable reality that most of us perceive is for the outsider an illusion, a facade obscuring a more dangerous and threatening possibility, that of nothingness, nihilism, and the void. The complete inconsequentiality of human life and all its achievements. For the outsider, the values and meanings that constitute life for most people a good job, a big home, a nice bank account, are empty and makeshift. They are at best attempts to gloss over, to make look civilized and rational something that is savage, unorganized, irrational. He stands for reality. He seeks a meaning and purpose that the everyday world cannot provide. 
and his salvation lies in understanding this and embracing it with total conviction. And I like what Gary further writes in the book, saying that Gnosis is a recognition that life does not lead to anything, but is an escape from something. The Matrix is a system, Neil. That system is our enemy. When you're inside, you look around, what do you see? Businessmen, teachers, lawyers, carpenters, the very minds of the people we are trying to save. But until we do, these people are still a part of that system and that makes them our enemy. You have to understand, most of these people are not ready to be unplugged. And many of them are so inert, so hopelessly dependent on the system that they will fight to protect it. A member of my Discord channel made some sentient meat remark the other day. He claimed that all of life's problems are due to free will. Yeah, sure, I countered. But what is the point of free will without awareness, without a state of wakefulness? If we have no gnosis, embrace no theurgy, and do not delve into hermetic reason, if we fall under the brutal propaganda of the deep state, allow the raping of corporatocracy marketing, cannot reject the mind virus of societal conditioning, all the free will in the world isn't going to be worth a hill of beans. This is a marketing holocaust. 24 hours a day, for the rest of our lives, the powers that be are hard at work, dumbing us to death. In Frank Miller's The Dark Knight 2, Jimmy Olsen is thrown in jail for exposing the fascist forces secretly controlling the USA, as well as controlling Superman and the rest of the Justice League. Brainiac asks Lex Luthor, the head of the plutocracy, what should they do with Jimmy Olsen? Luthor simply replies, release him. Free speech is a wonderful thing, so long as nobody's listening. The Archons also say free will is a wonderful thing, so long as no one is tapping into the choir of the Aeons. See, their morals, their code, it's a bad joke. We've dropped at the first sign of trouble. They're only as good as the world allows them to be. Get it? That's why listening to Aeon Bide and other alternative media is so essential because mass media has permanently destroyed the psyche of Western men. It's over. Society's collapsing. But we still have each other and the nuclear reactor that is Gnosis. On a side note, in the secret book of John, as some of you may know, there is an archon assigned not just for the stars and planets or to infect our brains, but for every part of our body. Tells you how encompassing the power of Yaldi Baldi is, eh? Free will ain't gonna be much without breaking out of this complete colonization by Wetiko. There's only one hell, princess. The one we live in now. Anyway, there are even archons who oversee the vagina, penis, testicles, and right butt cheek. Guess what? The secret book of John doesn't provide an archon for the left butt cheek. 
Could that be the weakness in the Demiurge's control? Like the flaw in the Death Star? Where is the bloody angel in charge of the left butt cheek? Was he part of the Great Resignation or went on strike? Does one of us need to send and take over the left butt cheek to infiltrate and destroy Yaldabao's simulation? Would you like to volunteer? Should we begin a left butt cheek rebellion? What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Let me know. In the meantime, you outsiders, let us to another stellar chat with Gary Lockman. Write your own gospel and live your own myth so you can finally find out why you were born and sit comfortably on your left butt cheek. What is it about society that disappoints you so much? Oh, I don't know. Is it that we collectively thought Steve Jobs was a great man, even when we knew he made billions off the backs of children? Or maybe it's that it feels like all our heroes are counterfeit. The world itself's just one big hoax. Spamming each other with our burning commentary Bullshit masquerading as insight. Our social media faking as intimacy. Or is it that we voted for this? Not with our rigged elections, but with our things, our property, our money. I'm not saying anything new. We all know why we do this. Not because Hunger Games books makes us happy, but because we want to be sedated. Because it's painful not to pretend. Because we're cowards. Fuck society. Elliot, you're not saying anything. What's wrong? Nothing. This is the Aeon Byte interview, and with us, we have the pleasure, always have the pleasure, being joined by Gary Lockman, this time to discuss his book, Dreaming Ahead of Time, Experiences with Precognitive Dreams, Synchronicity, and Coincidence. Gary, thank you very much, as always, for coming on the show. Well, it's absolutely my pleasure, Miguel. Thank you very much. And with us, too, always a pleasure, too, is having the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing? I'm very well, and um, good to see Gary back here to talk about one of my favorite subjects, dreams, dreams, dreams. Been dreaming about this show. (laughs) You weren't dreaming of Genie? (laughs) No, I used to. (laughs) Yeah, we all did, I think, at some point. Yep. Well, Gary, so what, uh, I guess we can start, what made you decide to write this book? I believe it uh, came to you in the spring of 2019 in a very different world. Uh, yes, I, I uh, well, here in London, um, I'm often invited to give talks. Um, uh, there's a group called The Curious Invitation, and they do the site-specific talks. And um, one of the sites I, I've done talks with them has been several cemeteries in London, and there was a famous one over in the west side called the Brompton Cemetery. And this was during a series that they called the Borderlands of Sleep. And so I gave a talk about hypnagogia, which is the in-between state. As you're falling asleep, 
we we drift into this half dream state um, before we you know fall into full on sleep. And um, many people over the years uh, have been aware of this and have been able to prolong it. And in that state, you know, strange things can happen. You see dreams starting to form. You can hear voices saying things. But it's also a state that's um, fairly uh, uh, populated by paranormal or parapsychological kind of phenomena. And um, after taking the, the audience through um, kind of potted history of hypnagogy and the variety of different people like Swedenborg and Jung and Steiner and many, many others, Uspensky and, and the esoteric world, plus, plus others as well, um, I tagged on a few experiences of my own in the hypnagogic state, and, but also I tagged on this, this uh, notion of precognitive dreams. Um, and it was originally sort of just to fill up some space on the talk. Um, and I, I talked uh, about people like uh, J.W. Dunn, who wrote this book in the 1920s called An Experiment with Time. And Dunn wasn't an occultist or anyone into anything like parapsychology. He was an aeronautics um, engineer. But he found out by chance, uh, purely by chance, that he actually saw the future, bits and pieces of the future in his dream. Not so much that he predicted anything, that it just, you know, sort of random bits of his future would turn up in his dreams and so on. And I talked about some other people. And... I had read Dunn's book ages ago, back in 1980, and I did what he did. I just started writing my dreams down, and lo and behold, I started <laughs> discovering that, oh, it's exactly what he said. All these strange <laughs> bits of the future turned up. And so I added that on at the talk. And then the funny thing was, the next day, I went on to uh, Twitter, and the first post I saw was someone who had been at the talk. It was a woman, and she, she, wrote, she wrote, OMG, with, you know, a, a few <laughs> exclamation points. It's true. And she, you know, whatever, I've been to this talk about, you know, dreaming the future, and this is what happened. And, and she said that she had, in a dream that night after my talk, she had picked a hedgehog up off the road, and hedgehogs are these strange animals that are very common here <laughs> yeah. uh, in the UK, and picked it up and took it off the road and put it onto the pavement where it would be safe. It wouldn't get run, up, run over. And she said the first thing she saw in her Twitter feed was a post about how to protect the hedgehogs. And she said, oh, my God, you know, the very first thing <laughs> yeah. I saw in the morning was exactly like the dream. And I thought, OK, maybe that's a sign you know, in a way. And so and over, I mean, just before, uh, well, you yeah, know, that would have been spring when I had the talk. And so just before um, COVID came to town here uh, at, at the end of 2019, I talked to my publisher about doing it. And then during the first lockdown here in the spring of uh spring into summer of uh, 2020 that's when i wrote the book wonderful yeah and i i uh i love how you share your experiences i mean you you and i have had many interviews i've read all of your books except i believe spensky is the only one i have not read and it was nice uh reading about your precognitions your dream work your synchronicities and i was like Oh, wow. Gary is finally showing the world his mystical side. But then I was thinking, wait a second. No, Gary's just showing uh, his human side, right? This is all just part of being a regular human being when you think about it. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm not claiming any particular credit for this. This is one of the things that Dunn said as well. He said that he initially thought that it was some strange, you know, anomaly that, uh, you know, that was he was particularly, you know, uh, subject to. But then. Again, through 
someone or something else that's got the stories in a hospital and he overhears some conversation about something and he realizes, oh, someone else is doing this too. So, I mean, had he gone into, you know, reading about it in, uh, you know, the literature at the time, even in, uh, I mean, the thing is, <laughs> we're talking about time. So the book came out in the 20s. A lot of his experiences were from much earlier. So I was about to say he could have read in the literature. He would have come upon more, more you know, uh, examples of the phenomena, but even at that time, there was a you know a, a enough literature about about it in some degree. But he 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 says he doesn't do that in any any of that sort of thing. Um, so I mean, um, so I just you know it happened. You know, I mean, it's it's been I've been recording these dreams for forty years. I mean, when I went back to write the book, I pulled all these old dream journals out, going back to nineteen eighty, um, and um, just out of those pulled out all the ones that are precognitive. And then, you know, I sifted through and it's sort of the best, the best ones. And I mean, strange things happen. I mean, one of the strange things that I, I mentioned in the book is that while I was going through the material in these old dreams, uh, I came across a dream from 1998 in which I'm told, stay at home, don't go out. There's no reason to go out, stay at home where you're safe. And this was exactly the message that was being, you know, broadcast on all the media everywhere, you know, during the first COVID um, uh, lockdown. So it was like, ah, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I mean, was that a precognitive dream that I didn't know was precognitive until I came across it looking for precognitive dreams? Yeah. <laughs> or was it, a, was it a synchronicity that, ah, as I'm looking for precognitive dreams, I came across a dream that, and so, I mean, all that kind of time displacement sort of thing that, Dunn sort of got that going. And there's, you know, quite a few, I mean, he, he had quite a vogue uh, back in the 20s and 30s. And uh, even people like H.G. Wells, I mean, who, you know, invented time travel in the sense with you know, the, time, the time machine. But a later book of Wells is called The Shape of Things to Come. From that film, Things to Come, was made in the 1930s. Um, it, he, he uses Dunn's ideas about seeing the future in the dream and, and Philip Raven, who's the kind of the character insofar as there is one in Shape of Things to Come. He has these series of dreams, but the far future and, you know, the history of, you know, the civilization and all that sort of thing. And again, J.B. Priestley, who's not as well known these days, but uh, in the last century, he was very well known and popular uh, English writer. And he wrote a series of plays called Time Plays, Time in the Conways, I Have Been Here Before, that deal with Dunn's ideas. And also, you mentioned Uspensky, Uspensky's ideas about eternal recurrence and, and sort of six-dimensional time. So, I mean, what I do is like, I, I have a, a kind of opening chapter where I say, well, look, here's all these dreams that I've taken out of, you know, my journals. And I have to say, there's one in particular, which <laughs> I, I, I just seem to me is kind of, I, I can't see how how anyone can get around it. Or I, well, I don't see anyone can get around it the other ones. And I mean, I know it's all anecdotal, you know, but at the same time, you know, if you read up on a contemporary, you know, contemporary parapsychology, people like uh, Dean Radin um, in his book, Real Magic, there's, there's the statistical evidence for precognition is like in. And there's even a precog economy, you know, um, where there's, you know, brokers, Wall Street or city bankers here who employ precognitive people to check out things. So it's something that's taken seriously in serious, you know, kind of places. And um I'm just saying, well, here, here's all these ones that happened to me. But the one that I was going to say is in 1990, I dreamed in advance two specific scenes and the plot from the 1994 film, The Shadow, with, with Alec Baldwin. 
And uh, I mean, it was just sort of there's I mean, I say in the book, there's a scene where I don't know if you know the film It's you know, it's an right. early yeah. superhero film. And, you know, the special effects seem, you know, creaky yeah. and, and <laughs> yeah. you know, ancient, ancient for us. But there's a scene where and if you know the story, the shadow is this 1930s pulp kind of, you know, character. He's, I guess, a superhero in a way, you know, but he's been to Tibet and he's learned how to cloud men's mind, you know, and he has sort of magic powers. But he can sort of make himself a shadow. He can become two-dimensional. And there's a scene in the film where he's doing that. He's like sliding along a wall as a two-dimensional figure. And then he steps out of it. He becomes 3D. And in this dream I had, it was exactly that. And there's another scene where he has um, his gun, which is a 45. That's like that sort of insignia of, of, of the shadow is this you know, 45. And there's a scene where he's, um, it's just a gun. And then it's, all, it's reflected in a sort of hole of mirrors and that scene as well. But the clincher for me was that the film revolves around an attempt by you know, this villain to blow up New York with something called the beryllium sphere. And in the dream itself, I, I dreamt that the story had to do with the sphere. That the shadow had to stop the villain from, you know, doing something with the sphere. So, I, you know, I mean, I, I, how, how could this happen? I hope somebody has a, 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 you know, halfway acceptable explanation for it. That it does happen. I, I'm, it's, a, it's just there. We live in a world where these sorts of things happen. So, yeah, and you and I have talked about, uh, you've written about it, uh, how there was a time uh, when our brain wasn't split, when we were uh, more precognitive. I mean, you talk about like, uh, in some of your works, Owen Barfield, talking about how language changed reality. So it's nice to see that this is a natural, really, state of human beings, just like a, a dog can detect a tsunami hours mm. before it hits. You know, we're more, mm. as, mm. as you've written, mm to be mm. more embedded in reality and outside of the flow yeah. of linear time, which is not woo-woo or new-agey, but the natural state of human being. And you even, I love, even Dunn, you write uh, that he had a dream where 4,000 people died, and then he found out that it kind of came true. It was actually 40,000 people died in Mount Pelé and Martinique. So even mm. he mm. was seeing that this is, uh, again, just being a human being. Well, well I mean, the sense that... Well, what he discovered was that in the dreams, it's not as if he's hovering over um, <laughs> a kind of landscape, the future, and he can look left and right and right. see, you know, the future. Oh, what's happening there, the future. It's his own future. Uh, and likewise, myself, it's, it's what is going to happen to me in the next day or whatever, or next hour sometimes or week or month. And that example, I mean, yeah, this is this was um, he dreamt that he was on an island and he saw, you know, cracks and fissures opening up and he realized there was going to be a volcano. And he was trying to get the French authorities uh, who were running the island to pay attention to him. And he was saying four thousand people are going to be killed. Um, what he later discovered was that he had misread the newspaper headline in the dream itself. So when you say it's just like normal, it's, it's normal in the sense that he says, if, if you do what I've what I've done. If you bother to write down your dreams and you know do it consistently over time, um, you will come across this phenomenon. And it's not again; it's not as if you wake up knowing that you've had a precognitive dream. It's not premonitions. It's not prophecies and or, or predictions, even though that these are all related. Obviously, the, the pre, the pre prefix, <laughs> the pre prefix, <laughs> yeah. as it were. Um, but um, it's as I said, you 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 would only know that you had dreamt 
a bit of the future or a bit of the future had turned up in your dream had you written it down and, and paid attention to it and you know there's people today i mean there's uh, you know who are trying to argue that yes in a way you're saying yes it's a natural phenomenon in some way backward causation and somehow because in the real world so-called real world of physics and so on past present and future don't exist you know so there's you know whatever there's just kind of some kind of now <laughs> that is just happening right. uh, irrespective of what, what we experience as past, present, future. And fine and dandy. I mean, you know, but, you know, but Einstein had to set his alarm clock, you know, in the morning anyway. You know, I mean, we, 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 we all, no matter what we may be happening on this micro level, elementary level in the macro world, we still, you know, anticipate a future. There is a past. Um, so it is strange for us. I, I think in some ways we're inured to it because we've had we're inundated with time travel sorts of stuff on on you know Netflix or whatever uh, these these streaming kind. And even that even that is an example of our different relation to time. And the one thing I regret about the book is I wasn't I I, I wasn't able to bring in or I, I didn't think to bring in or at least mention the work of Gene Gebser, who's a Swiss German philosopher from the last century that I talk about in my other books, but he said our time, he died in the early seventies, but he said what was going on, coming on its way is what he called the eruption of time. And that time was going to play a much bigger part in, in just everything and the whole culture and civilization. And when you think about things like Netflix or podcasts or a variety of different things now where all of this sort of material, you know, this content is available at any time and at any place. I mean, I'm, I'm from the ancient old world when, when I was a kid, I had, if I wanted to watch something on television, I had to be home at a certain time, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sitting in front of the television. And you, there was no such thing as recording it or anything like that. But now all that is just, you know, that, that's a thing of the past. And so even in that banal, everyday kind of way, our relation to time has changed. But I do think in another way, it inures us to like how strange precognition actually is, even though it happens a lot. But when you think about it, how, how can it happen? And I, I'm not convinced by any of the, you know, sort of quantum explanations that bring in positrons or whatever. I'm, I'm not saying they don't have anything to do with it, but they, it's like, fine, you know, but it's, I'm, I'm not a positron. I'm, not, <laughs> I'm a human being who like wakes up and then has this dream. And then like, how did that happen? Right. You know, how, how, how did it happen? And it also seems to have happened, at least in my case, you know, it, it's like a tap that sometimes gets turned on or opened up quite a bit. And a, lo a lot of it happens. It kind of pops and crackles around and then other times it's not it's not happening at all and that like the related phenomenon of synchronicity is you know which Jung uses as his all-purpose kind of stencil to put over you know all all paranormal you know kind of phenomena but it, that's obviously related to precognition as well well said and on a side note i wanted to ask you because i didn't even know this but I think it's so cool, Gary, that you started a band called The Nose based on your interest <laughs> in Gnosticism. I think that's awesome. How did yeah. that happen? <laughs> oh, well, yeah, I just had it. That was the name of my band, The No, K-N-O-W. Um, <laughs> yeah, when I left Blondie in uh, late 77, uh, and, you know, as a, as a young uh, man, you know, very uh, forthright and wanting to have, you know, be my own front man and all that. And, so I, I put a band together, just was a three-piece, myself, bass, and, and guitar, and uh, bass and, and drum. And um, I played guitar and sang and wrote most of the songs. But I was reading lots about Gnosticism and uh, 
I also um, was seeing Stefan Heller's um, oh, lectures yeah. at the Philosophical Research Society when Manly P. Hall was still around. Yeah. So this this was like about 78, you know, 70, late 77, 78 into 79. And, uh, you know, we, 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 we didn't get a big deal, but we were, we put out a single and um, we were a bi-coastal band um, uh, in LA and in New York and back and forth. And um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, we played a lot and uh, I mean, actually, you know, songs at the time I was writing, they were becoming more and more informed by my reading and all this sort of stuff. And precisely because I was reading about all these sorts of things that, I outgrew, you know, playing rock. I mean, I, I, I said in my book, New York Rocker, my life in the blank generation about, about all this, but I, I got too smart for rock and roll because you get, you, it's, you know, you get a certain point and you want to express, but you, the ideas that you want to express, they, they kind of exceed the medium that you've been working in, you know, you know, two minute, three minute pop songs. Although, but some songs, I mean, unfortunately, they, I mean, some of them, some, you know, they, they, they turned up on, um, as a, a CD that I put together quite some time ago now called Tomorrow Belongs to You, which was one of my, one of the songs I did. Um, and um, yeah, so some of the material from that band is a song called In the Know, uh, you know, that's about sort of what we're, you know, just talking about. So yeah, it's a strange. And, um, but that was it. I mean, after I, after I did that, then I sort of dropped out. And then um, the last thing I did at that time um I played with Iggy Pop for a year on, on two uh, North American tours, just as a hired gun. It was sort of like the Wild Bunch, <laughs> that, that, that film. Very cool. And your songs then have themes like Yaldabaoth and Valentinus, anything like that? Or you no, like- no, no, not so much. <laughs> but it's about being in the know, you know. So sort of uh, not, 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 not straightforward. You know, uh, I mean, it was a, subtle. It, it was subtle. Um, so you sort of had to kind of know about it in a way. Um, to get the hint and but as i said it's um at least for me uh i mean when i was writing songs they just came out uh but that's what lyric you know being a lyric poet as it were you know a singer you're singing your soul so it just it just sort of comes out but then um i sort of outgrew that uh it took me quite a while to learn how to write and assuming i know now but i mean it's a, a, a a good a good decade between dropping out of music to starting to like write articles and book reviews and all of that and then another almost another decade before a uh, actual book coming out so it took a long time yeah thing off uh yeah excuse me there's a the garbage truck is right now in front of the house always <laughs> oh, happens in oh, the middle yeah, of the you sure that isn't listener response? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you'd be familiar from your days in New York, how loud it can be, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. God. Oh, your garbage truck, you're lucky. Oh, sorry. <laughs> had to train the rats to eat Oh, everything. my God, yeah, yeah, and the train, yeah, and the subway, oh, my God, yeah. Mm-hmm. Never a dull moment. And, um, well, as I scream over this garbage truck, uh, what would you say are some of your more remarkable uh, first dreams or dreams that informed you? I really like your dream of King Kong and the UFO <laughs> in your days as a punk rocker. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I started out the book just saying about how um, I, 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 can't, I, don't, I can't remember any dreams from, say, my childhood, although people like Jung, you know, if you know his um, autobiography, Memories, Dreams, Reflections, it's all about his dreams. And he starts out, you know, these these 
strangely, you know, complex dreams when he was, you know, a child. <laughs> yeah. But no, I mean, but ones I can remember the mo- uh, earlier. So around this time, and I first was playing in New York, and I say there's one where I'm, I'm on King Kong's shoulder, holding on to his fur, and he's <laughs> swimming, he's swimming through the Hudson, you know, and it's like he's just circling, he's circling New York. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> and I must, you know, I must have, when you think about, you know, I must have felt top of the world or whatever, you know, around that time, because this was when I'm, you know, first, I don't know, 19 or so in New York, you know, playing in, in Blondie, who, you know, we, we were, you know, we were the band that opened for anyone then, but, you know, we later became, you know, very big. And then there's other dreams about like the UFO motherships, you know, before Close Encounters had been made um flying over new york and all that but the thing about those is these remark the, the vividness of the dreams i mean Uspensky talks about the dream artist and um, Uspensky was somebody who investigated this hypnagogic state um in the early uh 20th century i mean he was doing he was doing lots of interesting stuff before he got involved with Gurdjieff, and that's one of the things that uh, gets um missed about him and that that's precisely why I, I wrote the book uh to point to point these things out but he was doing very interesting experiments or self-observation in, in the dream state and he what he remarked on was just this the, the incredible creative powers of the dream artist and and the let's say the kind of reality that um whatever whoever um and i i say that i mean i i i come to feel that it's more of a who than a what um, that's behind the dreams happening in some way. Um, it, it's just the feeling um, because there's a certain intelligence uh, again, but I, I, I can't, I, I don't know a better word to use, but it's um, sort of after, and you must know this, you know, after, after time you, you, you observe these things, you pay attention and you realize there's patterns and it's not just random and, you know, kind of gobbledygook. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, that, that was, that was about those dreams. It's just this, this incredible, um, vivid reality, which puts, you know, all, all our attempts with HD and, you know, VR and all that just puts those to shame. Because, uh, um, and then obviously, you know, when you have the lucid dream, I mean, which I've had some, uh, but I mean, the earliest, I, mean, I still can kind of taste the, the earliest one, which I mentioned in the book, where I'm, I'm, I'm with the friend, uh, the friend at the time, and sort of I turned to him and said, this is a dream, isn't it? And he turns to me and says, yes, it is. <laughs> it's wow. sort of like everything kind of opens up, you know, around, around me. And, and it seemed like, uh, you know, like doors or whatever walls had gone down and suddenly there were this, this very vast horizons and all that. So, I mean, dreams have, you know, I mean, you know, listeners must, you know, they must all know this. They have this remarkable power to, and you have enhanced responses to things too. So your emotions are very powerful in it. But um, if you dream in color, colors can be, you know, quite, quite remarkable. Um, and, and um, the, I should say the sort of the outline of things is very, very sharp. And this was one of the ways in which, uh, well, it's said that you, you can learn to trigger a lucid dream is by, by sort of recognizing that things seem a bit more vivid and sharp um, in the dream than in your everyday kind of experience but um yeah i mean i mean th- th- those and then i said a, a variety of different dreams where um i don't know i mean there's so many there's so many in in the book it's 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 uh you know difficult to sort of pick and the, but the thing about them is that they're for the most part they're they're about trivial things i mean the ones we hear about you know the precognitive dreams we hear about or the premonitions or the ones that seem to predict 
disaster. Um, and I mean, there's, there's many, many, many around 911 um, um, here in the UK in the 1960s, there was a, a horrible tragedy called the, uh, the Aberfan disaster in, in Wales where um, uh, a kind of coal slip opened up and engulfed uh, the, this town and, and the school and it killed you know, many people. But um, someone uh, who was in uh, helping, who was you know, part of the, you know, the people helping there, they were interested in parapsychology and they got the newspaper, the Evening Standard to sort of, uh, put in a questionnaire of anyone who had any dreams prior to, you know, the disaster. And there were many, there were quite a few. Um, and, and so, um, but those are the ones we hear about, but the sort of thing that I, I'm, I'm writing about in the book is that they're, they're all sort of trivial kinds of things. They're nothing that the only person who would be interested in the dreams if they weren't precognitive could possibly be your therapist. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. there, there, there's usually nothing about the dream itself that, is particularly interesting. Uh, they're not big archetypal dreams or anything like that. It's just they stand out because how did this get displaced? And you know, all that raises all these questions about you know free will, you know, all, all that kind of thing. And I, I, I look into that, looking at um, well, Dunn tried to explain his experience um, with a philosophy he developed called serialism which is basically it, it requires a kind of endless numbers of different kinds of time and different observers, different levels. So there's us, everyday us in the everyday world. We got our nose down to the present moment. And, you know, we, we, we see time in this very one-way, you know, trajectory. So the past is behind us, you know, the future's ahead. We're on that track and that's what we do. But when we sleep, we get out of that harness somehow. And then there's what Dunn calls time two, or there's observer two, which is you, uh, but a bigger you uh, that encompasses the everyday observer one and time one. And in time two in the dream, you rise up above that one way track and you can look in both directions. You can, you can, you know, see the future ahead of time. You can, but you go in the past and that's why dreams can often be, you know, combination of past events or, you know, and, and future ones as well. And again, if you don't write them down and you don't pay attention, you'll miss it because it is trivial, little, little things. Um, and, uh, but then he also posits like, okay, there's another, because that's the why it's called serialism. It's, it's kind of the horrible philosophical horror of the endless regress. You always have to have somebody else, another level of time, look, and so on and so on. Um, but somebody who, didn't care for serialism uh, as a whole, but he, he thought the first three of Dunn's observers uh, were very useful. This is J.B. Priestley. And he said, well, we have everyday I who's stuck in the present moment. Then I dream me, observer two, I'm up in this other level or I can, I can look around in, in, in both directions, past and future. Observer three is the one who can act, who can actually you know, decide when the future event that you had dreamt about comes, comes to pass, um, what to do. And he gives the example of a woman who, who dreamed that she was, on, she was camping and she had her baby and she went to the stream to wash something and she forgot something, went back to the tent. And by the time she got back to the stream, the baby had drowned. And so lo and behold, when she did find herself camping and she did find herself at the stream, she remembered the dream 
and um, she went back. When she went back to the tent, she took the baby with her. So you might argue, well, it wasn't really a precognitive dream because the baby didn't die. Right. But you might say, well, no, she was given up front. This is one possible future, you know. But you know, if, if you know in advance, you can you can you can change it. And so, um, so I, I, I believe there's enough, you know, uh, you know, wiggle, you know, wriggle room, whatever you call it, to be able to get around the you know the the free will you know sort of problem with this because that's one of the things where okay if it's if you know in advance somehow this is happening then everything is kind of predestined and all that so or all right feelings about free will are illusory and that that can't be the case i I would say yeah it can get very complicated it seems dreams are still a mystery and as you write the it's connected to uh, synchronicity, precognition, free will. It's almost like you have to to time, as you said. Time is now uh, an important issue, and it can get complicated. I love this quote uh, you put by Augustine, Saint Augustine, mm. when they ask him about time, and he said, "If I am not asked the question, I know the answer." Sometimes <laughs> I feel that's probably the best attitude, huh? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I mean, well, that's the thing. I mean, you you, you have to be, um, uh, 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 well, I say you have to sort of be a philosopher. And even I, I even say that it's like, yes, you know, we we think we we all know what time is. Right. It's, it's what we don't have enough of, you know, <laughs> and it's 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 what we run out of when you know whatever we we haven't put money in the parking meter or so on and so on. But if you ask in that kind of philosophical sense, what is time? We find ourselves befuddled very quickly. <laughs> and that's a test whether you're a philosopher or not. It's like, well, <laughs> philosopher won't let go. And they keep thinking, well, no, this, this, you know, can't be right. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's the sort of thing. It's, it's one of those things where we, we know it intuitively in some way, but we can't pinpoint it explicitly. But that's why, I mean, again, Many things I'm saying in the book are, have, you know, been said before. And it's, it's, it's just that I'm, these are the reflections I've been drawn to trying to understand, you know, this phenomena that I've, I've been recording in my dreams for many, many years. Like, how, how, how could this possibly happen? And, you know, what, what does it lead us to? I mean, dreams themselves. I mean, the way I look at it in the book is like there's two mysteries I'm, I'm looking at. There's mystery of dreams and mystery of time. And then in precognitive dreams, they're both, they're both at work there. And that also leads us to, well, mystery of consciousness itself. I mean, you know, in the sense that, yes, you were saying earlier, Barfield and others posit some earlier time in, in, in human history, human evolution, when um, the kind of clear distinction that, that we experience now as, you know, the waking world and, you know, the rational world, and that's, this is the present and all of that, was it, it, was, it wasn't quite like that. It was, it was a bit fuzzier. And that's what the kind of dream consciousness is like. Um, where, where you know these these very sharp distinctions don't don't hold anymore, and um, so I mean all of this all of this stuff is related. It's all it's all you know it's fundamentally related to consciousness. And then you know also, I mean the way I see it, it's a gradient because even in our conscious state, we we can have strange experiences of time um, or or displacement. Um, I mean I talk about this phenomenon of time slips. You know where people find themselves back back in the past but it can even happen just in everyday experience i i I talk about when i was writing my book about madame blavatsky and i you know i spent a lot of time reading about tibet and you know you know she she claimed to have been at a secret monastery and near the tashi lumpo 
monastery and all that. So I was reading about, about all that, and then I'd be writing about it, you know. And then at the end of the day, the work day, when I was doing that for several hours, and I would go out, I'd be surprised to find myself in North London. It was sort of like, oh, well, you know, I just, <laughs> I just was in Tibet for several hours. And um, if uh, I don't know if you remember this phenomenon, again, this probably dates me, but I, I, I remember, again, when I was a kid, when going to the movies um, on a Saturday matinee, and then you're in, the, you're in the movie theater for four hours or whatever. Yeah. And then you come out and like, oh, you know, it's like you're back, <laughs> in, you're back world. in reality. It's like, what? You know, because you just wherever it was, you know, some science fiction film or Western or horror movies. Well, for me, it was so, Jackie Chan and those yeah, guys. Yeah, 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 right, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, whatever, whatever it was. So I said, but the, these are things that we take for granted. But when you think about it, it's like, well, you know, it, 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 I mean, I relate that to what we would say remote viewing or clairvoyance, which is what it is really. It has this upgraded you know, name remote viewing because the military is interested in it and all that. But I mean, if, if in a sense, although physically I was here in my flat, you know, working on the book, mentally I was in Tibet, you know, or whatever, you know, this, I don't know, what do you want to call it? Imaginal Tibet, you know, um, is that vastly categorically, you know, different from, you know, what we would call remote viewing where, okay, I'm here and, I'm actually trying to, you know, project my consciousness in, in, into Tibet or something like that. So all, all these things overlap. And that's what I'm very, I'm, I'm interested because when you're saying, oh, it's an everyday experience. Well, it is, but it's many ones that we don't, we don't really think about them. I mean, many of our everyday experiences already suggest certain kinds of powers and abilities, I guess, in consciousness. <laughs> to put yeah. it that way, that we don't really recognize. And if we thought about them, we would think, oh, actually, you know, that, that I'm able to do, just do that suggest something about the nature of consciousness well said yeah and as you um i think it's important to know is that yeah as you're talking about we we can't really know it uh we go from augustine to the philosopher and your book does an excellent job of showing that uh regardless dreams were important have been important the ancient egyptians as you uh right were the first to do dream incubation from the babylonians obviously we all know from the the hebrew bible how important dreams are to joseph and uh, jacob and so many characters and the greeks it's important and i think it is important because as uh, you write gary uh you say that jung said that dreams have a compensatory function they can alert us of imbalances in our psyches or life and you write, for example, you learn not to argue so much with your ex-wife <laughs> because of dreams. But so dreams, we can't ignore them because they can really make our lives much better and more whole and help us individuate, going back to Jung. Well, yeah, I mean, Jung's idea, as you say, is, uh, dreams have a com uh, compensatory function or, or character. And function is too, too um, literal a uh, character in the sense that, well, because Jung believes that the psyche aims or grows or moves towards a kind of wholeness and our everyday ego consciousness awareness is you know, a, a very particular, very highly, you know, as I said, articulated, very bright kind of bit of a larger uh, bit of the self, you know, uh, and uh, we, we tend to think that, you know, we, our everyday egos encompass all of our psyche, all the mind and all the consciousness, but um, the parts that 
don't fit into that very brightly lit, you know, focus uh, of, of awareness, um, they're still there. And, and for Jung, they seek expression. Uh, and so, and they tend to, in a dream or a fantasy, or, you know, even in neuroses, it's sort of when they really start to hit you over the head, uh, they compensate for the one-sidedness by, by bringing in, you know, these other, other sides. And so if you, you can understand that, I mean, that's some, some, that's a hermeneutic to put it in some technical term one can use to try and understand or look at the dreams. Okay. So, I mean, the Freudian or let's say the scientific is like, okay, what made that dream happen? So that's causal cause and effect. I ate that pizza last night. Ah, so that's why I had that dream. I mean, that, that's one of the ancient ones. Go, yes, you ate that food and that, that, that created, you know, because the organs are said to have dreams themselves. They each have their own kind of dreams, their own kind of expression in the unconscious. That's how we get into prodromal dreams about healing and things of that sort. But that's, that's a very cause, causal. You know, we tend to think, oh, that happened yesterday. So that's why I had that dream last night. You know, blah, blah, blah. Jung is saying, mm, okay, but how about maybe, the, maybe less like what made the dream happen than what the dream is aiming at itself. So he, he gives it a positive kind of trajectory. It's, it's, it's teleological. It has an aim. It's purposive. And that's where we get into, oh, it's trying to tell you would, would be the vernacular way of you know, expressing this. The dream is trying to say, oh, take a look, take a look at this. You know, this is something that you are unconscious of. Remember, we're talking about the unconscious. So this is something we are on. It's not unconscious itself, but we are unconscious of it. Or what, whatever it is, it does not make up a part of our immediate consciousness, but it expresses itself in this other time in the, in the dream. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so like if we pay attention Ebenezer to it, Scrooge, we, right? <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. Well, 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 ex- well, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, exactly. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, that's very much it. I mean, I, 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 I think uh, Christmas carols should be looked at as, as, as a kind of alchemical transformative fable oh, yeah. uh, having oh, to yeah. do with time, time and dreams because, and having to do with what Colin Wilson calls, Faculty X other times and places because he's he's rem, he rem, is reminded of his past. He's reminded of his youth. He's reminded of the Arabian Nights. He's reminded of all these things that he has lost track of in, in his in his you know um, focus narrow focus on you know money and so on and so on. So no, I I, I would say that's very much what, what what it's about. Really, it's a kind of secular transformative story. Um, Sadly, it's become you know sentimentalized and all that. Or I mean, I know which which is not hard to do with Dickens in the first place. But um, I, I think it's along those lines. But yeah, I mean that, that's the way you can you can read the dream. It's kind of like okay, and and the other way is and this is going back to the Egyptians. You mentioned all the people in the past. You know the great civilizations in the past where dreams are very important. The dreams speak in puns. They speak in jokes and plays on words. You know, we all know the big archetypal dreams where whatever you, I mean, I'm me, I'm on, I'm on King Kong and I'm, you know, <laughs> going through the Hudson. That was a big archetypal dream, whatever. But most of them, they're not necessarily like that, but they, they tell a story, but they often have a kind of, have a kind of um, humor to them. And it could be like, you know, sweetening the pill of the knowledge about yourself that you, 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 you need to know, and they can get it across you know, um, in a funny sort of way. And this is something that the Egyptians recognize. But we have to remember, you know, what the Egyptians thought was funny might not go over today, <laughs> you know, in Las Vegas or whatever, <laughs> or, or uh, every night and, you know, as, as you sleep. So you have to sort of see the humor in your own context. And that's another thing too. It is all of these dream interpretation books, you know, it, 
whatever they say about a cat or losing your teeth, it may have meant that at some time in some place, but the, it's, they're, they're all multiple. You know, they're, they're fluid, the symbols and dreams, and they're, they're very much a part of what's happening to you. And just in the same way that the future you see in the dream is your future, what you are going to see on television. And I have so many of, of, of the dreams in the book. It's about films I saw, what I saw on television, uh, things of that sort. Uh, and it's, yeah, so it's that kind of thing. So it's what I am going to do or you are going to do. It's not, it's not, I said, it's not generic, the future. It's not Nostradamus. (laughs) It's it's, it's not that kind of thing. And likewise in the dream, it's about you, you know, the, the, the story, uh, and, um, what the puns and the plays on words and the metaphors are, are about, or, you know, they're all about communicating some, well, it's like Jung says, it's getting postcards from some part of yourself, you know, to, to your conscious mind. Or it's a game of charades where, you know, you have to understand what the, and it, you know, as I said, it's more of a who than a what. So, I mean, I, I don't know, George or Edgar, whatever, whatever you want to call it, or him or her, <laughs> or, you know, a foment, whatever. But I also think as you address him, her, whatever, so, so shall he be, you know, uh, addressed, it'll, it'll respond in that way, uh, too. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, the, the early Tarkovsky film Solaris, um, not the George Clooney, you know, remake, but, and, you know, the planet is alive and it responds to, you know, the minds of the, of the, uh, astronauts, the, the, the cosmonauts, uh, that are there. And I think who or what, or, or we need another whatever. I don't know what that is. It's not even a, I don't know. Is that a pronoun? I don't know. Um, is behind the, that, you know, it, it's something along those lines. And I, mean, I, I know you can go down a rabbit hole that way. And I, I think that's one thing you need not to do too. Don't look for the signs. If you have to look for the signs, they're not signs. They have to hit you over the head. And then, <laughs> I love then, it. Then, he, ah, then you know, but if you look for it, no, because you'll find them, you'll find them everywhere, you know, but that's, don't look for them. Um, they have to come to you, you know, um, and you just be, just be attentive, write your dreams down, pay attention and you'll, you'll see, but you can really go out of your way, uh, you know, uh, off the deep end, finding, you know, symbols and signs and messages everywhere. Oh, agreed. And, uh, Vince, do you have a question for Gary or what do you think? Oh, this is, this is great. Um, I'm thinking of Carl Jung and, uh, the concept of archetypes and maybe, our futures are archetypes in and of themselves. We usually think of archetypes as more simplistic things, but maybe that's what we do when we swim through our dreams. We're swimming through the archetypes of our future, our possible futures. Well, it, it, it could be. I mean, I mean um, Jung does the, the first thing that differentiated Jung from, from Freud was what he called dreams prospective tendencies. Um, which is like the future oriented, they're teleological. They're like, what, what, what is coming ahead? So they may even, they can give you a sign what's coming ahead. You know, what's, what's percolating in, you know, the unconscious before it bubbles up to conscious mind or what the conscious mind would need to sort of move towards in order to uh, balance out um, it's, it's one-sidedness. But yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I, I think, you know, yeah. um, I mean, as I said, Jung said the unconscious wants wants to express. It wants to become conscious. It it, it seeks expression. So I mean, it's future in that sense. It has it, ha- it has a push 
towards towards uh, uh, manifesting and 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 becoming actual. I mean, whether in the sense, well, again, he he, he even says this when in the early earliest earliest work, um, his his dissertation on so-called occult phenomena, when he was doing these seances with his cousin, even though he doesn't say she's his cousin in, in the dissertation, Heli Preisvek, um, and amidst all these different voices that come up, she was like had the voice of, of, of their grandfather or great grandfather and other, you know, dead relatives and things of that sort was a future voice is a, a woman, uh, a, a female voice, Ivaness. And this was a much more mature um, one would say individuated kind of character personality than Helly was herself. And um, Jung, Jung thought that this was, you know, some, how you say better her as it were, you know, kind of, uh, more, more mature, more, you know, kind of fulfilled personality that was there that, that could come to, you know, fruition and, uh, and so on. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say that's one of the things, because, again, we, we really tend to think, as should we say it, in this kind of push, push from behind. Oh, what, what made that dream happen rather than like, oh, what might it be pointing toward? Yeah. yeah, the materialistic has been. You know, I was also wondering what you thought about, and you haven't mentioned so far. Uh, may have, maybe you mentioned in the book visitation dreams. Some things I call visitation of people that have passed on. I've had three of them, and they're different than any other dream. They're like the presence of that person is there in a way yeah, that very intense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I even had one with John Lennon. <laughs> oh, really? I mean, so you mean with a, 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 a dead person? A, yeah, co- yeah. Coming to your dream. Uh, well, I, I only name check it in the book, but I don't, I don't go into detail. And, and there is a great detail, but I do say about the strange dream I had about Rudolf Steiner. Oh, and wow. um, I really felt that it was really Rudolf Steiner in the dream. Yeah. And uh, it was like, uh, and it was one of the most vivid dreams I've had. It's a dream that stayed, one of these dreams that stayed with me. And um, again, it, 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 I can't go into the detail. Not, not, that, not that I want to keep it secret. It's just that it's, it's one of those dreams where it's kind of like you got to tell the story to get to the point. But it's like right. the, he had this face of infinite, infinite understanding and patience about, about something. That was, um, it was like, I don't know, comfort wasn't even like the right word. And I remember I, I did have a conversation with Colin Wilson once um, uh, back when I first moved here in the late 90s. And I mentioned this to him and he said, yeah, it probably was Steiner. <laughs> so it was like <laughs> very kind of, yeah, it probably was. And, you know, at, at the time I had the dream, I was reading a lot of books about Steiner and I was reading a lot about, you know, anthroposophy. And this is before I wrote, wrote about him and anything. This was, I just was, I just, when I was working at this bookshop in LA, um, a, a metaphysical bookshop and they had a huge wall of anthroposophical stuff. And I just was reading a lot of it. Yeah. You know, in, in my dream, uh, John Lennon, I used to love John Lennon when I was a teenager. He goes, I was a guitar player. Still am actually, but then as I got older, I got mad at him because you know I associated them with uh, you know uh, Karl Marx and things like that, <laughs> and, uh, and it really is because of his glasses probably or whatever. <laughs> and then and then what happened is in this dream, John Lennon came and we were just kind of hanging out and playing in the uh, guitar. He, he wanted to come up and play, and and he sat me down, and I don't remember the exact words in the dream, but when I woke up. 
I realized that I had him all wrong. And to this day, my attitude changed overnight yeah. about him. And then when I started looking what he really thought and believed, I said, wow, he's kind of like, he's like me, you know, <laughs> isn't that weird? Well, we'll talk about compensation, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you were, you, your attitude was one-sided and narrow about it. And um, I mean, Jung would, or Jungian, I, I might guess I'm, I'm, I'm not a psychotherapist, psychologist. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm I, I just write about this stuff, but I, I would, I would think they would suggest that that was some archetype of the self coming to you to, you know, show this other side. And um, you know, uh, I mean, I, I, I I mean, not putting aside, it may very well have been. <laughs> I mean, and <laughs> that's the whole thing. That's the whole thing when we get into this this other world. You know, um, I mean, we have all these phrases that were just handed down. Oh, it's just a dream. It was only a dream, or in your dreams. And of course, we know what that means. There's a different. You know, if I dream that I'm run over by a car, it's very different than I walk out my door and I am run over by a car. I mean, we all know that. So, I mean, that that we, we can put that to bed. But um, at the same time, there is something more about them. So, you know, uh, I, I don't know. There's a wonderful, um, I think it's called The Way of the Dream. Uh, uh, talking about Jung, there's a wonderful, this is back in the video days, I'm sure it's on, well, I was going to say DVD, but it's probably streaming now. Um, I think it's called The Way of the Dream. And people like Marie-Louise von Franz, who was one of the great, um, you know, Jungians, uh, and, and others, you know, talk about, you know, dreams and people's, you know, and people's dreams. And again, you have to, I mean, in one way, I mean, they're all very interesting, but they're also sort of like people's drug trips. And if you've heard one or two, it gets kind of like, okay, yeah, well, let me tell you, man, that time I took blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, so they get kind of samey after a while. But, um, if you remember that they, they say something, you know, about you or, or just the fan. I mean, in a way it doesn't, I mean, just the fact that you had John Lennon come to you in the dream and sit you down and say, Hey mate, <laughs> let me, let me clear this up. You know? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, 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 that's utterly fantastic. You know? Yeah. It's interesting as you're saying they're psychedelic. Yeah. What's the old joke? Uh, everybody always says, man, I had the weirdest dream. Nobody ever says, man, I had the most boring dream or banal dream. <laughs> Something oh, I mean, we, just like everybody's a reincarnation of Cleopatra exactly, or Napoleon. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, that well, that's one reason when I worked at this bookshop, I, I, I had a perverse um, inclination towards um, eternal recurrence. Instead of reincarnation, it's exactly the same life over and over again all the time. Mm. And the, the customers didn't care for that too much. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, but I said most dreams are very banal. You know, they're very boring. I mean, the, the, these big archetypal dreams are few and far between, and that's they're numinous, and that's why they stand out when we have them. If you have them all the time, well, this is my twenty fifth, you know, big mystical experience, and it's like, well, how different was it from your twenty fourth? You know, it's like <laughs> these things are supposed to have an impact on our everyday life. They they affect us. They give us a a, a kind of picture of things that we might not be able to have had they not happened and they inform us and you know we carry on and not to say you shouldn't explore it of course but it's it it, it can easily become a kind of i don't know what do you want to call it, kind of psychic entertainment i mean in one sense you know the lucid dream manuals and things of that sort where your conscious mind can start directing the dreams i mean that can happen but for Jung, you would say, well, actually, you're interfering with this natural process. The whole point of the dream is something other than you, your everyday you. I want this. I don't like that. Oh, I, I want to, whatever, in my dream, I want to sleep in so-and-so or be president or whatever it is. Um, you're kind of 
colonizing this other part of you and the bigger, the bigger you, uh, the, with the capital Y, the self, capital S, that is here, here, here's some stuff maybe you, <laughs> every day you, every day you needs to know about. So instead of, you know, and in some ways you can, you could argue that's a left brain kind of, you know, attempt to, um, what's the word, you know, kind of make utilitarian use out of something that just should be kind of left to itself, you know, to express. So um, I'm, I mean, I understand it. And I said, when it happens, it's remarkable, but um, uh, I, I think there's a kind of, you know, what would you say, a kind of a bone to pick there among, you know, people in, in the dream community, you know, whether you control them or allow them to happen and pay attention to them. Because so one of the things about the hypnagogic that people outside, you know, uh, just mainstream psychologists, uh, a fellow named Herbert Silber, who was an early Freudian and, and also knew Jung, he discovered that the hypnagogic is self-symbolic. So the voices you hear, the images you see, and things of that sort, they are symbolic of either your state of mind, you know, your emotional state, even your physical state, you know, what you were just thinking about, or you know, you're happy or angry about something, or you know, whatever your your liver's acting up. It's not random. And um, this is so it, it, even if you just start from that. If, 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 if as, as you're falling asleep, if you pay attention to this, the, what um, Wilson Van Dusen, um, a, a psychiatrist, but also a, a reader of Swedenborg, said, fragile fringe phenomena is the stuff that happens sort of like on the periphery as you're starting to fall asleep. Um, you hear voices. And, and think, I mean, I, I have um, at the beginning of the book, I have a line that I heard you know, drifting off in hypnagogia. I think it's, uh, Lord, help me believe in the primary dreams of which my life is made. So this, I had just heard that sentence as I was falling wow. asleep, you know, one, one, one night. And so, I mean, all that sort of stuff happens if you pay attention to it. And I would say this is the, these, this is the outskirts of the inner world, put it that way, or the inskirts. Nobody ever goes to the inskirts of town, do they? <laughs> no. But, you know, <laughs> but, you know it's, it's sort of, you know, it, I would say this is like the, 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 the fringe of it, you know. I mean, we're so fixed on having our consciousness focused on, on the outside, you know, the well, Plato would say it's the cave, you know, with the, the shadows or, or it's the, the false world. But, you know, if we can somehow start to pay attention to all this phenomena happening in the inner space. We, well, we become aware that it's an inner space. Awesome. Well, we are at the end. Uh, for the audience, I highly recommend you get Dreaming Ahead of Time. Uh, if you want more information on Gary and all his great books, uh, which I've mentioned, I've read them all except Uspensky. I need to do something about that. But go to garylackman.co.uk. Information on his new book and uh, website will be on the show notes as always. And uh, first of all, Vance, thanks for uh, keeping us company. Oh, my pleasure. Um, it was a very dreamy interview. <laughs> Too bad we've run out of time. Huh? <laughs> the Pink Floyd song, ticking away the there moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there right, well, another time, and uh, we'll, we can pick it up from there. So, yes. Um, Wonderful. Very good to hear from you both. And, um, yeah, well, dream well. Thank you. Always enjoy having you here, Gary, and good luck with everything. All right, cheers. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye now. And there you have it, oh, you spiritual entrepreneurs. Gary never disappoints. You had a precognition on how good this interview would be. 
In our second part, Gary will talk about the hypnagogue state and how you can reach it to see behind so many veils. He'll give us a passionate discourse on why free will does exist and what is wrong with those who contend we live in a block universe. Then Gary will pivot to the concept of synchronicities and other types of unusual coincidences. He'll certainly share the weirdest things in his own life. We'll also have a cool discussion on the notion of time and dream world and much more. So please become an AB Prime member, Red Circle subscriber, or Patreon at Patreon for the full Outsider Insiders game. Only $6.99 for AB Prime or $4.99 at Red Circle, or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. Membership to AB Prime or Patreon mid-levels includes full access to more than 500 quality shows. You'll get an invitation to the Inner Sanctum of Gnosis Facebook group and my Discord channel. Even support in the form of some shekel donations to PayPal or the US mail really, really helps. There is also a link on the show notes if you want to donate or tip via Stripe. I also have the merch store and an Amazon wish list. Get your popular Not Today Argon's t shirt today. Don't forget my voiceover availability. I'll bring you stellar voiceover results with down-to-earth professionalism, no matter what project or scope you need. Woo! I know that's a lot, but I gotta stay spread out as I dodge the algorithms of the technocracy. Keep in mind, I'm also on Rockfin or Odyssey if crypto's your bag. If you need help with all of these choices, just message my ass. I'm always here to help, and I truly appreciate your help. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real.